For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Kimberly Atkins-Store, Joyce Vance, Barb McQuaid, and me, Jill Wine-Banks. We're excited to say that it's the season to get your Sisters-in-Law merch. We have hoodies perfect for the weather now in the north, t-shirts for warmer climes, and our new mug for everywhere. Just click the link in the show notes or go to politicon.com slash merch and do it today to get yours right away. Wait, Jill, did you say climbs? Is is that what the kids say these days? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Isn't it, Don't you use that word? No, but I, I guess I should now. You, I, I okay. rely on you to keep me hip, Jill. Thank I you. I wanted to get in the word of the year, but I can't figure out how to do that. Um, and now I you have so what much riz, Jill. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you do. Okay. Well, before we start the show, we have a great little chit chat about something I'm really hot about. But we also have a great show where we're going to be discussing this week's myriad Trump and co-defendant news, Giuliani's pending uh, conviction or being held liable in his defamation case, and abortion is back at the Supreme Court. But I can't wait to talk about FSU not being in the final four and Alabama and Texas, who had a much less perfect record. FSU was undefeated. Joyce, you're from Alabama, so speak up about why a school that lost one game beat out FSU to be in the final four. Roll tide, baby. <laughs> totally unfair. I mean, what else do you need to know? I think Alabama will prove itself in these games. I hate that it's at Barb's expense, but, you know, talent rises and rises to the top. Well, <laughs> FSU had an undefeated season, and the Florida Attorney General agrees with me. She has filed. Jill, I wouldn't a- be bragging about that. Are you serious? <laughs> well, <I'm- laughs> Good point, Joyce. Good point. But she is right on this. She's bringing a lawsuit to determine what the decision makers of picking the four, how they could have gotten to Texas with a loss and Alabama with a loss got in and FSU with a perfect record didn't. So, Barb, do you want to defend that? Uh, it's indefensible, Jill. I'm with you. I think you have an undefeated record. You run the table, you get in. You know, you've got uh, Alabama over there claiming like it's their birthright <laughs> or something to be in. I did hear so, it, as a Michigan fan. Do you have a problem with that? I do. Uh, you know, as a Michigan fan, we're undefeated. So I uh, I just watched this little debate unfold. But um, I, I heard this in Michigan. Uh, the argument goes something like this. Um, Alabama, how could Alabama possibly be in this? They lost a game. Florida State was undefeated. It's ridiculous. It's SEC bias. It's Alabama derangement syndrome. Um, and they'll probably win. 
So <laughs> FSU is going to probably drop out and join the Big Ten because of this, because they do see a bias there. Kim, do you have a neutral viewpoint on this since I picked on Barb and Joyce, who clearly have an interest in the outcome? What's a football? I should have known you'd say that. Okay, so let's get on with the show. And listeners, you should let us know what side you're on. The perfect scoring FSU, should they be in this? Let us know. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Well, let's jump right in because it has been another one of those weeks where some days it felt like you were just watching a ping pong match. I mean, there was one day where I sat down for 20 minutes with a cup of coffee and then just realized all sorts of crazy stuff had happened involving Trump's legal affairs by the 20 minutes it took me uh, to resurface. There are a lot of moving parts involved this week, and I think one of the things we can do to help our listeners is try to figure out how everything fits together. The top line is sort of that Jack Smith asked the Supreme Court to jump over the Court of Appeals and hear Donald Trump's immunity appeal straight away. That immunity motion is a really big deal because if Trump wins the immunity argument that he has presidential immunity, then the entire prosecution goes away. It gets dismissed. After Smith made his request to the Supreme Court, the Court of Appeals expedited their schedule. He had asked them to do that at the same time. He said, look, we don't know if the Supreme Court will hear this, so please, Court of Appeals, go ahead and issue an expedited schedule in case you keep the case. And the court, in fact, did that. The briefs are due over the next couple of weeks. So that's sort of a tangle. Jill, can you sort it all out for us and talk about what you think will happen and what it means? Sure. And I think you have laid it out precisely correctly. He sort of, it's belts and suspenders. He did both things at once to make sure that there was no unnecessary delay in getting to the trial, which is scheduled for March 4th. And we in Watergate did the same thing. We went to the Supreme Court and said, this is a national interest case and it's going to end up with you anyway. The district court has ruled we don't need the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia to weigh in on this. Please take the case. And they did. And within months, we had briefing, argument, and decision. They heard arguments, and within two weeks, they had made a decision. And within weeks after that, the result was Richard Nixon resigned from office because the evidence that we got as a result of that was so clear and compelling. But it is safe to say that you can't know whether the court will take on a case without it going through the Court of Appeals. So it makes sense if you're in a real hurry to ask the Court of Appeals to expedite the case. And in this case, they have. um, Next week, briefs are due for the first part. And then I think maybe 10 days later or seven days later, then the rebuttal is due. So that could happen very fast. The interesting thing is, will the Supreme Court, seeing that this is being expedited, say, well, we can let them do this and we don't have to wait. Uh, We don't have to go ahead and jump in now. But it's going to end up with them anyway, because whoever loses in the Court of Appeals is going to go to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court does not need a lower court to weigh in on what is clearly an undecided issue. There's not like they're going to misinterpret the law. There is no law. There are sort of clues as to what the court might do. I personally think the immunity issue is a loser and that it will be denied. But I'm not the Court of Appeals in D.C. and I'm not the Supreme Court. So I think they did the right thing and that this will speed up and 
eliminate the delay from this particular issue. Yeah. So, you know, I agree with you completely across the board on that. And something that I'm looking for as the Supreme Court decides this issue is whether Clarence Thomas will participate. Do you guys think he will or do you think he'll recuse? He is not going to recuse. Yeah, Yeah, no way. He should, but he's not. You know, here's the only reason I flag it. Um, Remember he had that case that involved John Eastman, who had been one one of his law clerks, and he recused from that matter. I mean, I think the reason we all think he should recuse is because of his wife's activities, right? Right, right. But I wonder if when the Trump case comes up, John Eastman, his former law clerk, he's already recused in a case involving him. He's one of Trump's co-defendants in Georgia. And I wonder how, given the prior recusal, he would justify participating in this case, especially since now, supposedly, the Supreme Court operates under those same rules that all other federal judges operate under. Don't y'all think that that's sort of, I mean, I hear I mean, you laughing, <laughs> right? Because it's Clarence Thomas and he clearly doesn't give a you know what about the other He doesn't. Rules. And if anything, he's aggrieved, right, Joyce? Like he feels like all of the smoke that he's gotten since Anita Hill testified at his confirmation hearings is some, you know, attack against him, some uh, high tech lynching, including this. So I, I don't think he's going to do that. I think in a case directly involving John Eastman, Eastman was his clerk that's a place that is sort of like, it's really hard for him. Even he can't go, right? Right. But I I think for all other things, especially if the reason is Ginny Thomas's involvement. And he's already refused to recuse himself in cases with his wife's interests being at stake. So he's already said, "Mm, nothing here, nothing wrong. So I don't think he will change his mind. Uh, It's, I mean, it's just nuts, right? And if he doesn't recuse, it means that they've adopted these new ethics rules and they're meaningless, which I think was the conclusion that we reached when we discussed them anyhow. So there's that. Hey, um, so Kim, to make things more complicated with this whole Trump mess, Judge Chutkin stayed all of the further proceedings in her case while these appeals are pending, no matter who ends up hearing it. What does that mean that she has stayed? And should we be concerned about the impact of that? So this is the one thing that I'm actually not on the ledge about. Like, I think that this was something (laughs) that was expected and it's not that big a deal, especially because I don't think that it'll last that long. Yes, she halted all proceedings while um, particularly the Supreme Court and the district court um, decide this. I think on this issue, on the immunity issue, that's going to move quickly. I would be surprised if it goes beyond next month before we have uh, a, an answer on that from uh, the SCOTUS, if not the SCOTUS and the district court. So I think she sees that as pretty low stakes, holding it until then. Um, and I know it's complicated because there are a lot of other appeals that we're going to talk about in a minute. But I think for this, it's not this alone, there are a lot of normal things that might push off the trial date further from March, but I don't think this alone is the thing. I think that it was what she was required to do, and I think it is expected and totally run-of-the-mill and not a big deal. Yeah, I know that there are people who are saying she could have taken a more aggressive view under Griggs. That's the precedent and could have said she didn't have to stay, but I'm with you on this one. I think she had to. And where it worries me is less the March 4th trial date and more. Remember how she had announced her intention to start screening the jury in February? Yeah. I mean, it is going to take a while to see the jury in this case. And so I, I hope that the appellate court gods are thinking about the fact that they need to be maybe closer to 30 days, like you suggest. I guess it was 60 in Watergate, you know, for the Supreme Court, even in something like this, 90 is fast. Um, I I hope that they appreciate the consequences of of inaction here. Um, And Barb, it's not like the Supreme Court doesn't have a lot on their plate just in in this narrow area of their responsibilities, because they've now agreed to take an appeal that involves the obstruction charge that's been used against some of the January 6th rioters, this obstruction um, of an official proceeding regarding the January 6th certification of the Electoral College vote. That's obviously one of the charges that Trump faces in the D.C. case. So how do you think that will affect his prosecution, if at all? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question. And uh, I, I actually have some concerns about it. Um, you know, the statute on its face says that um, it, it's a crime to obstruct uh, any other proceeding. You know, it lists a whole bunch of other stuff before that. 
um, any other proceeding. It's really broad language designed, it appears to me, to be a catch-all for things they don't specify in the other sections of the statute. And most of the judges who reviewed the January 6th cases, you know, the cases against all the people who were charged with um, engaging in violence on January 6th, who were charged with this, interpreted this statute to include uh, an effort to stop that certification process, to obstruct it, you know, to slow it down, to delay it, interrupt it, whatever. Um, but there was one judge who had a different take. He's a Trump appointee. And his take was he bought into a defendant's argument that said, um, no, this statute, because it was passed as part of the Sarbanes-Oxley uh, Act in 2002 in response to the Enron financial fraud scandal, relates only to fraudulent documents. Uh, using documents to obstruct justice, it, it has to be part of the case, and otherwise, you know, the statute doesn't apply. Seems pretty goofy to me in light of the language of the statute, but that was the argument. And then the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, you know, said, no, that's wrong. Um, it's any official proceeding. Well, the fact that the Supreme Court has taken this up when all the other judges um, found that it was appropriate really concerns me that they're taking it up because they want to reverse it. And we've seen this, Joyce, I think you might have mentioned this in your Substack. In recent years, the Roberts Court has been all about narrowing corruption types of charges. Um, there was a case involving Governor McDonald in uh, Virginia. There was uh, the Bridgegate case in New Jersey. There was the Enron case itself. And we've seen the Supreme Court kind of just cut back on the kinds of charges that can be used in public corruption cases. And so this one worries me a little bit that they might find that. Um, you know, the idea that it was intended to apply to documents, of course, completely flies in the face of, of textualism. There's nothing on the face of this statute that says it applies only to documents. And so um, it'll be interesting to see how this shakes out. But as you say, Donald Trump has been charged with two counts under this statute. He's also charged with a different count, uh, conspiracy to defraud the United States and a voting rights violation. And so if he were to lose, uh, Jack Smith were to lose these two counts, it wouldn't end the case. But I think he has to think carefully about what he does in the timing here, because he could get a conviction at trial and then find out that the case has been reversed on appeal. And then the judge, uh, you know, on appeal, the court could say, well, there was too much spillover evidence from these obstruction charges. And so the defendant's entitled to a, a new trial altogether. Um, but there's, an, you know, or, or do you wait until June to try the case? I don't think so. So it, it definitely puts a little bit of a, of a monkey wrench into the works here. You know, it does, and it really goes to the court's good faith, right? Because the court can either draw these decisions out or we know that this is a court that can act very quickly. In Bush versus Gore, it ruled the day after the argument, recognizing how critical the issues were. I don't know if this court has the same spine that the court had back then, to be honest. Can I just add, I want to read the exact language because it, it is so obvious that it isn't limited to documents. There are two parts to this. Whoever corruptly alters, destroys, this is all about documents, or separate section, otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding or attempt to do so. It seems to me that is clearly a catch-all for anything that is not mentioned in one, and it is any way of obstructing or impeding an official proceeding, and there's no question that the counting of the ballots was an official proceeding. So I think it should be a clear decision on the language of the statute and can be issued really fast. And so, because otherwise I do share Barbara's concern that you have a trial on four counts and you can't distinguish the evidence that may have affected the two counts that are unrelated to this. So I would worry about going ahead with trial until there's a decision. Yeah, and I would just add this. This Supreme Court has been notorious for being all persnickety about language of statutes, even after the fact. Remember um, the Virginia governor who was convicted on honest services fraud? Yeah, McDonald. The, that's the yeah, McDonald case. Right, and then the Supreme Court was like, oh, no, that's not. And, and if the Supreme Court this term takes that ruling, at the very least, what I'm worried about is the political implications. If two of the counts against Trump is thrown out, all that will do 
is give the appearance of wind in the sails of his bogus claims that this was all just a political witch hunt against him and everything. And there's just, it's confusing enough that that would be enough for him to be able to make uh, political hay out of. That's what I'm really worried about. It, it's not even the law on it. I agree with you, Jill. I think it's clear. The statute says what it says. Textualists, it says what it says. <laughs> but um, textualism, schmectualism. Yeah, but yeah, here's the problem. Court. You know, McDonald was a unanimous decision by the court. It wasn't a case that split with progressives and conservatives on opposite sides of the fence. And I think that point that Barb makes, that's what's keeping me up at night here, is the court has had a trajectory in this area of looking at these statutes that have a clear textual meaning, right? I mean, Jill reads the language, it says, and otherwise, which to me means, and leaving those documents behind and just talking in general, right? This applies. And the Supreme Court seems to look at cases like that and say, you know, this is just too broad and too vague. And how are these poor politicians supposed to know what would be a crime? This statute is unconstitutional, so we're going to save it by making it a lot narrower. And that's what happens in McDonald, where they say for a bribe, it wasn't enough that the governor was in exchange for just this massive amount of you know gifts he was getting from a friend, like paying for his daughter's wedding reception, that he was setting up meetings, that it had to, an official act had to be something you know more like making a decision on a policy or something. I could see them doing something like this, and and now it's you're really, scaring me. Well, I, you are so. I, it's I'll the scare point you one Barb more. Makes right. Here's Why wait. Let me scare you one more. Case? Let me scare you more. Justice Kagan, who is my favorite justice and is usually the voice of reason, wrote an opinion called Yates. Do you know this opinion? The Yates Fish was case. another case yeah. brought under the obstruction language as modified by the Sarbanes Oxley Act, and the language in that case, a guy was charged. He was caught. Um, fishing illegally like without a license or something and he had a bunch of fish in his boat and as he sees like the coast guard come in and check it out he throws all the fish overboard and he gets charged under this section of sarbanes-oxley that makes it a crime to destroy or conceal any record document or tangible object and they said the fish were tangible objects and you threw them overboard and kagan wrote the opinion it was five four but Kagan wrote the opinion that's a tangible object. They meant, you know, records and stuff like financial stuff. You can't be a fish. So you government, you lose. So I'm, I'm kind of worried about Kagan in this case. Jill, there's room on the ledge out here. I'm, come on. <laughs> I'm holding your hand on the ledge. <laughs> I mean, this could be a unanimous decision against the government. So to y'all's point that the evidence, if, if it's tried and then there's a ruling that says you can't use this 1512 obstruction, I'm actually less worried about the evidentiary problem, and here's why. Jack Smith is careful in the indictment to make all of the allegations coextensive. The same allegations, the same evidence applies to all of the charges, but y'all are right. I mean, if Trump, if his lawyers are able to single out some category of evidence that's admissible only on this obstruction charge and wouldn't be for the straight up conspiracy or the civil rights conspiracy, then they they would have an argument that they could make. I, I'm a little bit less worried about that. So maybe that backs us a little bit off the ledge. Um, and I guess that takes us to Georgia, right? Because Jill, with all of this rough and tumble that's going on in DC, do you think it'll impact the scheduling of trial in Georgia? It's such an interesting question because um, the DA, Fonnie Willis, has asked for an August 4th trial, and that was to take into account all the previous trials starting on the dates they were scheduled to start. If the March 4th trial doesn't happen on March 4th, then that impacts on a domino basis all of the future trial schedules. So it is possible. And then let's not forget, we haven't mentioned the Florida Mar-a-Lago federal case, in which um, Judge Eileen Cannon, who has shown in the past to favor the defendant, Donald Trump, she has a trial date that could easily slip. And she's sort of taking steps that could slip that. But there is some reason to believe that she's holding the trial date so that Fannie Willis couldn't ask for an earlier trial date, even though she might have asked for the same date 
that Judge Cannon was supposed to go to trial if that hadn't been set for trial. So it could end up pushing, and August is really late for starting this trial because the election's in November. If you start in August, think about how long that is. And, I, you know, Watergate, we tried from October to December, had a verdict on January 1st, which is pretty fast for a lot of defendants and a lot of counts. But nowadays, trials take longer. And I think you're running into a problem if you go beyond the August deadline to try and get this resolved before the election. And I don't know if anybody has, I haven't read anything about someone saying, when does the federal supremacy kick in? Is it after you're the president-elect, or do you have to be inaugurated as the president? But Oh, I think inaugurated would be my argument, because it's all about being too distracted to do the job. Yeah, well, absolutely. President-elects have a job to do. They have yeah. transition and appointment. I'm just... I, yeah. I mean, obviously, I would yeah. argue yeah, no, for you're right. You're right. I would yeah. argue I don't for know that inauguration, yeah. but mm-hmm. I'm just it's saying they will argue that it starts as soon as he's the president elect and he has to go to work picking his cabinet, etc. Um, so it's it's concerning to me that it's August 4th to begin with, and if it slips from that date, or I may, might be August 5th, uh, which is Michael's birthday. Happy birthday, Michael! In advance. Um, so I, it's it's a concern. Yeah, lots of concerns. Um, Kim, this morning, the oral argument on the Mark Meadows removal motion took place in the 11th Circuit. Did you get a chance to follow along with that at all? How did it go? I did, and I am not um, concerned that this case is in any danger of being removed to federal court. So, of course, Mark Meadows is arguing that because he was acting in his capacity as a federal official, that he can't be sued in state court and that the case needs to be removed to federal court for venue. As we've mentioned before, this is only a venue issue. It does not affect the law that's applied. It doesn't affect the prosecutors. It's still a state case, but he's arguing that it should be moved to a federal court the logic being that federal officials somehow get a better shake in federal court. Um, I, I'm not worried that he's going to win this. So his best argument is that it interferes with the administration of the federal courts in their prosecution of these cases, which literally did not pass the giggle test with the judges. <laughs> like It was just really laughable that Mark Meadows is concerned about preserving the uh, administration of just uh, justice in the federal courts. Um, and the other argument was essentially, well, by allowing federal officials to be, um, you know, hauled into state court, it just will... Um, uh, discourage people from running for office because they think once they're done, then a state court is going to indict them and haul them in the state court. Also laughable, like li- literally, like how many people who you know who've run for office said, you know, I was thinking about it, but no, because I might be indicted. Like, come on. Like, <laughs> that's not an argument either. I-, I don't think this is going anywhere. Um, well, Barb, do your prosecutor's spidey senses tell you anything um, about how this plays out? You know, if Meadows loses in the 11th Circuit argument, does that maybe amp up his need to cooperate? And um, I, I know you hate to crystal ball. I do, too. But I'm curious what you think about how this ends up and whether Jill might be right about Georgia being the first case to go out. Of course, Manhattan is still there in line. What do you think? Yeah, I have always been perplexed about the role of Mark Meadows in cooperation. You know, there's some reports of some really dastardly things he allegedly did, like burning documents in the fireplace um, and, uh, you know, being too scared, according to Cassidy Hutchinson, to tell, to tell, ask Trump to call off the mob on January 6th. But the fact that Jack Smith did not describe him as an unindicted co-conspirator, although he did do so with many others, made me think he was cooperating there. And then he turns around and gets indicted in Georgia, which made me think, well, no, he's not. But I wonder if um, he fails here in this removal, which was an effort to get everything into federal court, he doesn't start looking toward cooperation in Georgia. If he's already cooperating in D.C., it really makes sense to cooperate in both places. It doesn't make any sense to contest the charges one place and testify in another if you are 
you know, testifying against yourself in one place, it's going to be used against you in the other place. So um, I agree with Kim that this effort's going to fail. The case is going to stay in Georgia. And so maybe you're right. Maybe it becomes more likely that Meadows enters a guilty plea. I, you know, going back to the removal question, I was interested in the arguments because I really never thought about how broad the language of the statute is. Under color of law is pretty broad, and that sort of scared me. Um, and that there was an argument that the standard, you didn't have to actually prove right then that it was actually within his job. Now, of course, it sounded like, you know, a, a Nazi defense of I just was following orders um, because it can never be your job when the federal government has no state responsibility for elections. But it it did worry me. Um, and then he would take it and use the supremacy clause to say, you can't prosecute me. So I, I, I just never thought about the standard being so low. The 11th Circuit decided an en banc in October that presupposes that Mark Meadows loses this case. I think the only question um, is how long it's going to take Bill Pryor to draft and circulate the opinion. That makes me feel better. Thank you. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Well, a jury has just awarded $148 million in damages against Rudy Giuliani and in favor of Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss in their defamation case. You may recall that Giuliani had previously uh, conceded that he had defamed the two women who were poll workers when he publicly accused them of stuffing the ballot box in Georgia in 2020. So this week's trial was all about the damages that would be assessed against him for harming their reputations and unleashing threats and harassment against them. Moss and Freeman were seeking compensatory damages, damages for pain and suffering, and also punitive damages. Um, I'm going to ask you about that, how that breaks down, Jill. But I wanted to mention that um, earlier this week, I got a great email from a listener who said that it's too bad Norman Lear isn't still alive because he could be inspired to create a new TV show that would be a mashup of All in the Family, Maud, and the Jeffersons, in which part of the damages award was that Moss and Freeman get Rudy's million-dollar apartment in Manhattan, and because Rudy's broke, <laughs> to pay off the rest of the damages, he has to work as their maid. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a good show? Sounds more like the odd couple to me, but I think it'd be a good, it'd be a good show. If you oh, I love it. I love yeah. it. That would be fabulous. Um, but Joe, can you just break down the damages and explain the difference between what, what's compensatory and punitive damages? Sure. And that's a question that's come up a lot on online. Um, compensatory is for actual compensation for making sure that you are returned to whole. So, for example, in this case, um, Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss said that it was going to cost them $24 million each to restore their reputation. That would be actual damages they incurred was to do this. And so that's compensatory. Punitive is intended to stop the defendant from doing this again. And that comes up not only in this case, but in the E. Jean Carroll case, where it obviously didn't work with a $5 million verdict in trial number one because he redefamed her, Donald Trump redefamed E. Jean Carroll, walking out of the courtroom. And that led to the second case, which actually went to trial first. So you need enough uh, punitive damages to be awarded to really make an impact and stop the defendant from doing the same thing again. In this case, the jury awarded basically almost $17 million 
to each of the plaintiffs, uh, a little bit more to Moss than to Freeman, um, and then awarded them $20 million each for their emotional distress and $75 million total for punitive damages. That should get his attention and make him and other people who go on TV and lie and defame someone with false statements like this, make them think twice before they do that again. So I would be watching everyone on Fox News, and if you get defamed on Fox, you should bring a lawsuit. Look at the damages you could collect. And so that's how the um, punitive and compensatory worked in this particular case. Great. Joyce, um, how is it that Moss and Freeman ended up on Giuliani's radar screen in the first place? Like, why did he select these two people to be his target? You know, it's such an interesting question, right? These are like just two women in Fulton County working on the election like so many Americans do all the way across the country. That's what makes our elections work, or, or volunteers who work at the polls and who count votes. Um, the first time that I'm aware that this story shows up, Barb, there's a Georgia legislative hearing about a month after the election, and one of the attorneys volunteering with the Trump campaign presents this snippet of grainy surveillance video. It's vote counting taking place in Atlanta, and he claims that it shows Freeman and Moss conspiring to clear all of the observers out of the room so that they could produce what Republicans begin to call suitcases filled with fraudulent ballots. Um, and the far-right website Gateway Pundit identifies Freeman and Moss by name and starts disseminating a very deceptively edited version of, of the video that, that tries to support that story. A couple of weeks later, lo and behold, Rudy Giuliani shows up in yet another hearing in front of the Georgia legislature. And this time he's making the claim based on the video that Ruby Freeman and Shea Freeman Moss, and he says this, quite obviously, surreptitiously passed around USB ports as though they're vials of heroin or, or cocaine, making this incredibly racist, it's not even a dog whistle, right? It's just a flat-out appeal to racism in the best traditions of Southern vote suppression of, of Black Democratic voters. And that's how this whole thing gets started. It's an effort to discount the Georgia vote, the legitimacy of it. And Rudy Giuliani drags Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss right into the thick of things with no warning. Yeah. And of course, it, one of the most memorable lines from the um, House committee hearings on January 6th was always, and what in fact was the item that you passed between each other? And the answer was a ginger mint. And I love it. it was, it's never just a mint or a mint candy. It's always a ginger mint. I love it. But um, your observation about that phrase um, passing it like it was a vial of cocaine was so deeply offensive. It, I mean, do you think that was part of the whole um, effort by Giuliani? Was it casual racism or was it part of the effort to say, you know, this is a black criminal enterprise against white America? I mean, what, what do you think? You know, it's the racism that's embedded in the Southern narrative about using voter fraud as a justification for suppressing voting rights. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is something that we hear routinely in every election down here. And I, I think in other parts of the country, it expanded. You know, this voter fraud narrative, it existed before Trump. He just put it onto steroids. But there was always this suggestion that those criminal black people were voting illegally or they were counting votes illegally. And so good people had to pass, you know, identification laws or, or whatever the, the measure du jour was for, quote unquote, protecting the ballot. I viewed this as being very much in that tradition. And it is a purely racist tradition. And look at yeah. what Trump said. Like, and he's still saying, "Go, go watch Philadelphia. Go watch Detroit." You know, yeah. you know, he's he's picking these places not accidentally. He is saying to his supporters, "Go harass black people in these places where they're voting, because there is something inherently suspect about it." They must be breaking the law if they're winning, right? <laughs> Well, Kim, after the first day of trial, Giuliani goes out and gives public remarks outside the courthouse where he says, you know, he was asked, like, do you have any regrets about what you said? He said, no, I don't have any regrets because everything I said was true. 
Um, did he defame them again? Was this like E. Jean Carroll redux? Like, what like, do you think? Is there like another claim? Literally, as we're recording this, I was watching him speaking outside the courtroom after the verdict was handed down. Did he do it again? And you could see his, I mean, he's completely disconnected from reality, but you could see his attorneys on either side of him trying to usher him into the car (laughs) before he committed more defamation. Like he was just saying, I wasn't allowed to offer my evidence. And the only reason I didn't testify is because I do this judge with hold me in contempt and throw me in the jail so I wasn't able to present my ev- I mean crazy we've already explained this he was already found <laughs> to have defamed them as a matter of law this was only to determine damages and just because of the the damage he was doing to himself his own attorneys went from at the beginning of this uh damages trial they were saying well you know what they're asking to do would ruin Rudy Giuliani. You know, he's, he would be ruined financially by something like this. They went from that to trying to minimize, you know, to, to perhaps they thought they might try to. Usually when it's a damages trial, you sort of go through and try to pick apart the evidence presented as to the damages. They didn't even do that. After, um, after Ruby Freeman testified after Giuliani was acting a fool outside the court. They didn't even cross. They didn't even ask her a single question. Don't make it worse. <laughs> exactly. Like, okay, after let's just get out of here. <laughs> she talked about the horrific, what she and her daughter had been through, which is absolutely horrific. They didn't even cross. And at the end, they were basically conceding like, you know, look, <laughs> like what could they say? The defense all but gave up and it was because they didn't want it anything that was that they would say would make it worse they were clearly trying to do all that they could to contain this man i couldn't imagine him being a client could you i mean he was still saying that he was going to present evidence that proved that the you know the election was stolen this he has no intention of stopping what he's doing and the only way to keep him from defaming anymore is to take his phone away and to keep him from going in front of cameras well jill along along those lines of what kim just said you know giuliani chose not to testify in his own defense uh what do you think of that decision it sounds like kim thinks that was a good decision what do you think i think it was an excellent decision well, but, he lost and, and, $148 million, so maybe Yeah, but he might have lost more if he had <laughs> testified. I know it's hard to believe, but he, he, like Donald Trump, is uncontrollable. And I am sure that his lawyers thought he's going to redefame them on the stand. He's going to make it worse. So I think it probably was a good thing. And he had, as Kim was saying, he had no defense. And I was sort of outraged that in closing arguments, his lawyer said, well, he they explained without any witness to have put this on the stand. And obviously, your summation is supposed to be based on things presented in the court. He said, well, he didn't testify because he thought they had been through enough already. <laughs> did he say that? I mean, really? And if he was too much for them to bear. It's because he did it. So, I mean, I was like outraged by them saying that. I couldn't believe I was reading in the summary of their summation that they had actually said that and got away with it. You know, you hear that argument so often in white collar cases. I bet you guys have heard this. You're there to sentencing for some, you know, high power person, whether it's a public official or some white collar defendant. And the defense is they have the audacity to say, your honor, my client has suffered enough just by being indicted and the stress of going through this trial. You should sentence him to no, you know, no prison time because just going through this has been an awful, awful experience. And then I always want to say, why he can barely make eye contact with anyone at the country club. What shame he's been through. Like, give me a break. Are you kidding me? Everybody feels shame in going through something like that. Brother. Well, Joyce, in closing argument, the prosecutor quoted back some language from Giuliani's own memoir about bullies. Did you find that argument to be effective, using his own words against him? You know, I did, and it sounds like the jury did too, Barb. Um, <laughs> right? I, Giuliani had said in his um, memoir that he wrote after, obviously, um, the Trade Towers went down, and, and this is what gets quoted in closing argument. Never pick on someone smaller than you. 
never be a bully. Good words to live by. Too bad Rudy Giuliani forgot him. It's going to cost him $148 million. So I hope he's learned the lesson. Yeah, I, I it's a it's a good lesson. I can see why they used it uh, against him. How about the closing argument of Giuliani's lawyers, Kim? I know you said it seemed like all they wanted to do was get him out of there, and they didn't have a whole lot to work with. But what did you think of their strategy? Yeah, I'm with I'm with Joyce. I mean, yes, on the one hand, it's ridiculous to say, oh, you know, um, we think they've been through enough, and that's why we didn't cross, and you know, just staunch the bleeding. I don't know what else could they have said. I mean, what else could they have yeah. said to this client? I'm not. I feel. I actually. I don't know anything about his attorneys personally, <laughs> but I feel for anybody, any lawyer who has to defend Giuliani. Yeah. I mean, in any case, civil or criminal, it is vital that people, defendants, have robust yeah. legal representation. That's what makes the system work, and and he yeah. should have that too. But good God, could you imagine doing that job? No, their defense really seemed to me to come down to. Um, remember he used to be mayor, um, and he was, he was kind of good then. Remember people kind of liked him then. Like just remember that when you're calculating your numbers. Good all right, God, so how just do us that one favor. Fallen. I mean, <laughs> I I've been thinking about that throughout. Like how he went. Yeah. I mean, the the nonsense that he's spewing. He used to be a prosecutor. He yep. used to be a mayor. He absolutely knew at one point, at least how all of this works. So either this is a big show or he has been so deranged by his association with Donald Trump that it has literally dissolved him down to the smallest of small people. You say, don't pick on people smaller than you. There's nobody smaller than Rudy Giuliani. (laughs) So, I mean, he has just been reduced to such a small person. Uh, But nonetheless, it is important for justice to work. And this is yet another example. We've talked about E.G. and Carol. We've talked about um, the Fox News defamation cases and others where justice was found in a civil court. And I think that's really important. You know, this reminds me of two things. One is one of the best lawyers I ever worked with was the senior lawyer on the Watergate team, uh, James Neal. And I worked with him right after that in private practice. And he said to me, you know, it doesn't matter how good a lawyer you are. It has almost no impact on most cases. Most cases, you either win on the facts or you win on the law. And when it's none of those, you pound the table. And uh, my an, another person said to me, you ask for a writ of Rachmanis, which I believe is Yiddish for a plea for mercy, because there's nothing else you can do. So I guess he was asking for a writ of Rachmanis. So not two years after Roe versus Wade was overturned, the issue of abortion rights has landed once again at the U.S. Supreme Court. So Barb, Dobbs was a constitutional challenge, but this new one takes an entirely different posture. It's a challenge to the FDA's action with respect to the drug Mifepristone. Tell us what the Supreme Court will be considering here. Yeah, so they are reviewing the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals decision. You may remember that the district court went so far as to say that all of the FDA approval of mifepristone was wrong and inappropriate, and uh, they had exceeded their powers. But the uh, the Court of Appeals scaled that back a little bit. They said the initial approval uh, was valid because the plaintiffs had waited too long to challenge it, but um, there revised recent guidelines that allowed mifepristone to be administered without a doctor present and to be ordered by mail. Uh, that had gone too far. So that issue is before the court. But also, one thing that is interesting and gives me hope is that they're also reviewing whether the plaintiffs had standing to bring this case at all in the first place. And that is one I'm sure we discussed at the time when this case came down. Because remember who these plaintiffs are. These are a group of doctors who say that they oppose the FDA approval of mifepristone because it could be, in theory, that someday some 
uh, pregnant person may take this drug. It may fail to work as intended. They may end up in an emergency hospital situation. It may be their hospital, and it may be that they're on duty that day. And so that doctor would be required to perform an abortion against his religious views. That is so speculative uh, that I remember we were aghast that there was standing at the time. So the court's going to look at that issue too. And so it could be that the whole thing goes away uh, if they find that those plaintiffs lack standing. So I want to just take a step back here because yes, we have this group of this, this group of doctors who are the plaintiffs here, and it's speculative speculative as to whether they have standing even even to bring it. But Jill, is it really these doctors bringing this case? This the, there are people involved that make me recall the Dobbs case, and that maybe this isn't really an administrative challenge at all. Maybe this is just Dobbs part two. Can, can you do you get what I'm putting down here? Uh, yes, and you are of course correct. It is the same funding group that is doing this that recruited these plaintiffs, and uh, but there's two parts of the, your use of the word administrative, um, because in fact, this could demolish our administrative state if this could somehow challenge the expertise of the FDA and substitute some judge's ridiculous uh, interpretation of how a drug is approved. Uh, so it, it is in some ways aimed at the administrative state. But it is also a way, in my mind, of totally eliminating abortion nationwide. So if we go back to Dobbs, it was, well, let's let the states take care of this. Well, that wasn't good enough because, what, only 20-some states adopted an abortion ban or such a strict interpretation that it's a virtual ban. And the other states allowed it which meant that people were still available to get abortions in those states, even if they were from out of state. Maybe not from Texas, because you could get prosecuted for going out of state. But if you abolish this, more than half of all abortions are done through medical medicine, taking this pill combination. And so now you're not only eliminating the surgical abortion, but you're eliminating more than half of all abortions. And think about what that means to the abortion clinics. It's a lot easier to prescribe a pill and have someone take it at home than it is to perform a surgical procedure. So it would mean there'd be an undue amount of pressure on the surgical places that still exist in states that still allow it because they couldn't dispense a pill that is perfectly safe, that has absolutely no history of danger to recipients, even as it was done under the relaxed rules where you could get it at home and you could get it through the mail. So I think it is really a very broad challenge to the country as we have administered it with appointed uh, agencies looking to use their expertise and make decisions and pass regulations, and it would be a national ban and eliminate at least half of all abortions nationwide, even in states where it is still legal. Yes, Jill, I agree with you. If there's anything that the Supreme Court, this majority seems to hate more than abortion access, it is the administrative state. So this feels like it has potential to be a real one-two punch. So Joyce, uh, as I was preparing this topic, the New York Times dropped a new deep dive in how Dobbs was decided. I know I, I talked about it a little on threads. Um, what's your takeaway from that? And what, if anything, does that tell you about how this Mifepristone case might go? You know, this is a conversation that we've had before, Kim, this notion that the Supreme Court has sort of a special jurisprudence when it comes to abortion, which means anything to get to the result that they want to get to. It doesn't matter how they have to contort themselves to make a legal argument that, that suits the end that they want to achieve. They will do that. And something that struck at, stuck out at me in this article was the fact that Justice Alito appears to have circulated his opinion uh, among conservative folks early to make sure everyone was on board to shore up weaknesses 
in an effort to make sure he would be able to reverse Roe versus Wade. Mifepristone really cuts at the heart of reversing Roe. If mifepristone is permitted to be used along the lines that the FDA currently permits, which means telemedicine, mail order, you don't have to show up at a doctor's office to use it. Well, that really undercuts what the court did in Dobbs. And here's what I think ends up being at tension. Um, In Dobbs, the justices say, this is an issue that will be left up to the states to decide. Well, in the Mifepristone case, Judge Matthew Kaczmarek in Amarillo, Texas said, hey, guess what? Nobody in the country can have ready access to Mifepristone. And the court is going to have to resolve that. And normally I would expect them to be pretty states' rightsy, let's let the states do this. But, you know, given this this special jurisprudence that the New York Times piece really goes over at great length, I, I think we have to be really worried about how this one comes out. I'm with you too. I mean, the, the, my takeaways were that it took Neil Gorsuch 10 minutes to say, yep, looks good to me. Um, Amy Coney Barrett was objected not to the result, but to overturning Dobbs like five minutes after she got on the court because she didn't want that smoke. She wanted it done, but she just wanted to wait. Um, Kavanaugh too was on board. He was more uh, about, you know, uh, also about optics, but that there was not any internal struggle on the substance among that majority at all. Not a bit. It just makes me say, oh gosh, we're, we're, we're doomed. We're doomed here. Anybody else think differently? Yeah. Yeah, You know, (laughs) the only thing about it that struck me is, you know, when the big leak came out, I didn't really know who it was, but I, I had thought it was probably someone in the liberal camp who was just throwing out a panicked, call for help at the last minute, like for the love of God, somebody, you know, look what look what's about to happen. Is there any way to get a lifeline here? And now after reading this, I am far more convinced that, as you said, Kim, it was somebody from the conservative camp who was worried about leaks and trying to lock in the vote. Um, of course, all of this is speculation, but that was the conclusion I was left with after reading that article. I agree with you, Barb. It Certainly, it's a very lengthy article and very worth reading, and not just for those of us who love inside the court shenanigans and stuff, and it has plenty of that, but it does seem most likely that it was, the decision was really closer than we thought, and in order to make sure nobody on the conservative side wavered, it was leaked to lock them in, and I think that that was always my feeling, Um, but it was confirmed by this article. Well, guys, that was a great show, great discussion, great breaking news as we were recording. And now we get to what is always our favorite part of the show, the questions from our listeners. And I just want to remind you all listening that if you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tag us at sistersinlawpodcast on threads or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your questions during the show, keep an eye on our feeds during the week following, and we try to get to some of the questions we didn't get to during the show. And for today, as always, we have so much trouble picking just three questions, but we try to limit ourselves to that. Today, we have a question for Kim from D in Walworth County, Wisconsin, a place where I love the county fair. It's a fabulous (laughs) county fair. Wait, you've been to their county fair? This is something new about you. Oh, I love county fairs. We don't understand anything that's happening there. We watch the horse show. We have no idea what the horses are. Although now that I'm watching Heartland, a Canadian series, I understand more about horses, so maybe I'll get it. Um, Yeah, but it's so much fun, and the food is so outrageous, and the entertainment is great. We once saw the Beach Boys, the actual Beach Boys, at the Walworth County Fair. Anyway, great place. So I'm glad that she sent a question in. And her question is, can you explain the concept of separation of church and state? She said, I was always under the impression 
that that was what was meant by the First Amendment. Kim? Yeah, so the concept of the separation of church and state does come from the First Amendment, which states, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And what that was meant to do was to prohibit what existed in Great Britain beforehand, which is you had a state church. You, you had the Church of England, uh, which was essentially a part of the government. The founders wanted to make sure that there was no government established religion, but also that people would be able to practice whatever religion they chose without government interference. We can have a whole segment about how that has gone left and that has, <laughs> has strayed from what I believe the founders' original intent was. I certainly don't think that it is the basis for all of the religious freedom challenges that we have seen in recent years. And I also don't think that it prohibits, you know, God or religion or anything from being spoken in a government place. I mean, it's on our money. I, I don't think that that's a problem with it. I think it's been taken way out of context. But let's let's put a pin in that. Let's do a topic on that in the very near future. I'd like to because I have a different viewpoint, Kim. Mm. I Yeah, the Pledge of Allegiance was changed to add under God while I was in grade school. And I do not say under God. I take the pledge as it was when I started grade school. And the school. First Amendment says you don't have to say under God. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, and we should mention, of course, the First Amendment also gives us freedom of the press and freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. Of so it's, it's much broader than religion. But that's, yes. that is a good summary of the religion part. So, Joyce, here's a question for you from Kelvin. When we hear something along the lines of Judge Chutkin issued a 45-page ruling, who actually writes these rulings? Is it her? Yeah, so it's such a great question. You know, Judge Chutkin is a district judge, so she's got law clerks who work with her. And the practice varies widely among different judges. Some judges give their clerks more responsibility for research and, and even drafting other judges give them less. I know some judges who don't use their law clerks at all on the criminal side of the house. Their reasoning is that in matters of, of liberty, of you know actual liberty from custody, that the judge should do all the work. But usually judges will have a robust conversation with their clerks in their chambers. They'll go out, they'll read the law, they'll look at it, and then the judge will make a decision about how to rule and, and will write the opinion in whole or in part but one of the really important things about our justice system is that there is this robust conversation that both trains the young lawyers who are clerks and also gives the judge the opportunity to explore different perspectives. You know, sometimes we all make better decisions when we have the chance to have a sounding board and, and to bat ideas around. And so that's how this part of the process works in the district court. And one more question, and Barb, I want to ask you this because I love the name of the sender, too smart for most. <laughs> and you are certainly too smart for most. <laughs> and the question is, can't the president pardon Hunter? Will he? Yeah, that's a really good question, too smart. Um, yeah, he can. It's a federal offense. Hunter Biden has been charged now with uh, illegal we weapons possession and with tax violations. Both of those are federal offenses. There is nothing to prevent President Biden from pardoning Hunter Biden right now at this moment for both of those crimes. Um, I think the, que the, the trickier question is, will he? I, I think one of the things we've discussed in prior episodes is that on their face, these charges are sound. Uh, it, it appears that the evidence is there and that he could be charged with these crimes. I think the thing that makes people uncomfortable about these charges is it appears that he's been charged mostly because he's the son of Joe Biden and it's politically motivated in an effort to smear Hunter Biden to get to his father. Um, I don't know whether I do or don't agree with that, but that's certainly Hunter Biden's view. You know, he was called to testify before Congress this week with a subpoena and um, they wanted him to uh, give a deposition behind closed doors. And he instead showed up, he defied the subpoena and gave a statement outside the Capitol saying that he, if he's he's willing to talk, but he will only do so in a public hearing space. Well, he doesn't get to call those shots. And so I can understand why he might prefer that, but it's not really his call. So I think he feels like he's been a bit of a political football here. And so I think Joe Biden could issue a pardon if he so chose. 
Oftentimes these happen on the last day of a president's term so that they don't have to deal with the repercussions of it. But um, I think it's one to watch. Um, my guess is if Joe Biden wants to um, be politically savvy, especially if he's seeking a second term, um, and you know he's always been committed to this idea of the rule of law, and he selected a, an attorney general to adhere to the rule of law, I think you kind of let you got to let your kid take his lumps. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkins Store, Joyce Vance, Barb McQuaid, and me, Jill Wine Banks. Remember, you can send in your questions for next week by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. And please show some love for this week's sponsors HelloFresh, Thrive Cosmetics, Blue Land, Olive and June, and Lomi. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them because they support this podcast. And if you're listening, I know you've probably already done this, but if you haven't, please follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode, hashtag Sisters in Law. So one thing that Ruby said was Rudy Giuliani isn't the only person who spread lies about us. Others did too, but that's the work of tomorrow. So Ooh. Go hinting Lady at Ruby. Trump. Good going.